Battle English at WeSpeakEnglish.com, where the pen is mightier and the language is the true battleground. There will be three rounds. Round one is critique combat. Round two is the grammar gauntlet. Round three is the lesson showdown. Remember, this is a fun, friendly, educational battle. Discussion of topics, questions, and answers is encouraged. And for everyone watching at home, you can learn more about Battle English at wespeakenglish.com. In today's battle, we have Jeff, aka Fluent American, aka the Flutenant, taking on Daniel Thunder from Down Under. The judges of today's battle are Jennifer from English with Jennifer and Christopher Huntley, Chris Americos. Critique Combat. Now let's start round one. In this round, we'll show you short clips from YouTube videos, and you need to identify mistakes, correct errors, and explain how the topic could have been taught better or improved. Remember, points will be awarded for correctly identifying and correcting mistakes and for insightful and constructive critiques. But, you know, if I was, you know, for every inch taller I would have been, my life would have been 30% better. And so things worked out great at 5'8", but at 6'1", I would have taken over for Conan. Um, so, yeah, I, I had trouble with that one, Chris. I couldn't find um, a mistake there, unfortunately, sorry to say. He, he repeated himself, um, but I couldn't find an exact grammar mistake, unfortunately. Okay. Maybe you have other, comment, other commentary on the video or, or something. He said it really quickly, uh, uh, the words together. Um, he said, I had been, and he said, you know, um, but unfortunately, he said it very quickly, but I couldn't uh, see any grammar mistakes there, unfortunately. Yeah. All right, Jeff, do you want to add anything to this? Yeah, I mean, I think, so he's getting into some hypothetical territory, right? He's basically saying something like in, an unreal past conditional. That's basically what he's doing, kind of playing around with. So that repetition of like, if I would have like, if I would have been, then if I would have been, kind of things like that. And it's hard because I don't, I don't want to say that's necessarily a mistake because I think situations like that, you hear native speakers. Is my wife around? Like, my, <laughs> this is a mistake that native speakers make all the time with like unreal past conditionals. So I think it's like, hey, are you doing more prescriptive grammar? Are you doing more descriptive grammar? Um, similar to that too, he he starts and he corrects himself. Like he says, if I was, and then he, then he says, if I had been. So I mean, again, it's like, how grammatical do you want to go? If we're going textbook grammar, because then if like, if I was, then yeah, that's not technically going to fly. You, you would want if I were, but I would personally kind of feel bad dinging that because that's how people talk. What do you think, Jennifer? I'm going to give it to you both, but of course I have to split hairs here. You're right. You know, when we get into that hypothetical territory, I mean, there's what the rules say and then there's what happens. And I like the language about playing around. That's what we do. So we do try to stick to standard grammar, but there's a lot of play area. Um, the fact that Daniel's saying, you know, there. What is, what's the mistake? Yeah, a lot of people just perceive it as correct. We know what the intended meaning is, and so communication is successful. But if you start picking it apart, you're like, maybe he could have said that. Maybe he should have said that. So the would have been, would have been repetition is a bit awkward, but it still conveys his message. So I would say technically, I would also avoid saying incorrect. 
or wrong. It works. It, it's acceptable. Um, could he have phrased it differently? Yes. Um, if I had been taller, it could have been different. It would have been different. So I like the labels that Jeff pulled into this. So if we really want to start talking about what we're looking at, we're looking at conditionals, hypothetical, unreal, counterfactual statements. So I like both of your responses, but Jeff, I appreciate that you're tackling um, with terms. <laughs> <laughs> but not necessarily giving it to like, hey, let's go prescriptive. The reality, both all of us here agree that, you know, descriptive grammar is going to win out in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great response, both you guys. All yeah. right. Let's move on to the second video clip. This is a video clip from a teacher who's a non-native speaker of the language who is teaching a grammar point. And you can analyze it in whichever way you want. You know, some of these clips have mistakes, you might say, or some of them don't have mistakes and we're just analyzing the speech, right? So you haven't previously thought about it. You haven't planned it. Just somebody's talking about a party and you're like, oh, I'll go. I'll come with you. Yeah, no previous planning. Or the meaning is that it's something like 50-50 chance of happening. I, I think grammatically sounds pretty good. Not a whole lot to pick some article things. Like she says, like there's 50, 50 chance, you know, versus there's a 50, 50 chance. Almost treating it as like a compound. Now or just a descriptive phrase there. So you do need that article. But the big things that kind of stand out to me are pronunciation wise. And we're going for American English, right? Well, I don't know. To me, it sounds like she leans more British English. So, so that's, and that's, that's what I was going to talk about. So I don't, if I'll put it this way, I'm going to phrase some things based on if a student were interested in an American English context, there's some things that I think you'd want to be aware of. Um, firstly, with diphthongs, sometimes your diphthongs are getting a little bit overly tense at the ends. Like, so you hear like O sounds, like um, I forget if she said go, but there was one word that ends on an O, but it's kind of O, O versus like O, O. Some other typical things of Slavic languages, um, kind of in connection with that point, some final vowel sounds. So, for instance, over reductions, you see this on final E sounds. So like you can hear fifth, like fifty versus like fifty. So making sure that your E sounds aren't becoming E sounds. That's a very common reduction for Slavic languages. Um, some of the things you want to watch out for again, O sounds sometimes getting overly tense, say O, or sometimes also getting reduced like an ah, uh, like window becoming like window and things like that. Um, I would also say the placement trends a little high like it's kind of sounds like she's talking kind of top of throat back of mouth versus trying to engage the diaphragm more and trying to get a little bit more airflow to pass through um these are all things that i think would help on a pronunciation um basis um i do want to say one thing i liked just in terms of pitches in general in american english when you're switching from one thought group to the next in a sentence you do want to mix up your pitches Sometimes her thought groups are a little similar in pitch, but there are times, for instance, when she's describing dialogue, like she's giving an example of the party and then she says this, 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 and then you say, oh, well then, so like, yeah, when you switch to describing the dialogue of another person, very natural strategy to raise the pitch higher and she's doing that. So those are some quick things I noticed. Awesome. Great answer. Uh, Daniel, what do you have to add or do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff with the pronunciation. It's, it's very off. She's obviously not native. She has a really uh, 
she's correct in the in her explanations with explaining will with it's spontaneous or it could be probability 50 50. she says um the mean which is could be confusing um I, I immediately thought that was a mistake which she said the mean of the da, 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 i think she should have said the meaning of that but then i thought a mathematical thing the mean a mathematical thing came into my mind does she mean the mean mathematically but i think she she meant to say meaning but she didn't pronounce it very correctly um she's absolutely right she's, it seems like she's teaching very well with the uh, the will as, as it's been spontaneous it's for probability it's things that happen in the last minute so i thought it was pretty good uh, but other than that pronunciation thing and the mean word other than that it was pretty good teacher good lesson i thought all right let's go to the third video clip Last year, my friend Danny, and I still want to kill him for that, set up a blind date for me and a friend of himself. That was a lady he was working with. The immediate mistake there, a friend of himself, obviously sounds incorrect. A friend of his, you could, would be the correct phrase. A friend of his or a friend of himself is incorrect. Uh, other than that, it sounded quite good. Um, the description he was using was quite uh, good, but other than that, that's only the mistake I could find here for that. Anything to add? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, Pronunciation-wise, um, really helpful that he put up the subtitles because you see things, for instance, Danny, Danny becoming Danny. Um, so we've got some vowel things, confusion with that ass sound linked with the nasal, so like Dan, that Ann. There's also some stress-related things. So he says blind date. Um, which can be a compound noun. So sometimes you get the stress on blind, but I think the more frequent way you hear that is honestly with the stress more on date, like oh, I have to go on a blind date with someone. So there's some stress things there. Um, in addition to that, uh, I, again, uh, folks, on, I, I teach pronunciation. So like the, the things they're saying out to me are especially pronunciation based. Like his, his pitch is very clear he is reading. First of all, it's very clear he's reading. So some of this is just kind of public speaking stuff because what's happening is his thought groups are very disconnected. There's not much joining his thought groups together. So basically, it's like if I talked like this, which is occasionally causing some of his stressed words to be a little bit unbalanced and not be correct. And it's also what it's also doing is it's never giving him a chance to flow because he has so many stresses because he has so many thought groups. So he's never really giving himself the opportunity to use some of those lower pitches that are much more frequent among native speakers because every time you're going back to those stressed words at such a high frequency you get really stuck at those higher pitch ranges so i think trying to use some longer thought groups would have been really helpful and trying to limit some of the stressed words would have been pretty helpful as well um so yeah some stress related things some linking things with thought groups of some mispronunciations of vowel sounds um those are the the big things i'm noticing really quick yeah, I didn't notice that he was reading. Like that didn't I, I, that didn't strike me at first. But now that you said it, I'm I'm thinking about. It. I'm like, oh, I need to go watch it again. Yeah, watch his eyes too. He's definitely like staring at. Like I that. didn't notice he was reading either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could I could be wrong, but I'm, it sounds like it's a teleprompter. That's why I haven't bought. Even if I had the money, I don't want to buy one because I feel, I don't like seeing people's eyes. <laughs> you can see it. Happen. Yeah, never. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well. Those are great answers. Let's go to the next video clip.
Guys, the next clip is going to be a native speaker. She's giving a talk. It's an ed talk, not TED, but an ed talk. And she's talking a bit about her own personal experience. So listen out. Is there anything that you would question? You ever heard of kids that said, you know, nobody never says nothing positive about them? That was me. So again, this is where we're getting back into that prescriptive descriptive grammar. And I think something that we see is in this speech, we find some like double negatives, you know, you never said nothing and things like that. So grammatically, if we're going from a standardized approach to grammar, that would stand out. But at the same time, you know, I think this is a tricky one because there's a lot of privilege and there's a lot of social linguistics and hierarchies and things like that and positions of power that come into play. So I'm very hesitant to point these as mistakes, especially in the, in the sort of like English language learning context, because the reality is that we already, look, we already are in a society that puts this sort of speech pattern at a disadvantage. And one of the things she's doing too, is she's, it's not even necessarily her own speech. She's taken on the voice of one of her students or another person, you know, who's using these things, but we're already as a society, like in North America already kind of penalized that. And other countries see that too through the media. So then other countries start penalizing it as well. So this is um, a, a very tricky kind of clip to play because it can continue to kind of propagate the sorts of ideas that disadvantage people who are already disadvantaged. Those, those are kind of big things that stand out to me. Awesome. Daniel, what do you have to say, man? Yeah. So. Definitely agree with uh, Jeff about the double negative. She says, nobody never says nothing positive about them, which is obviously incorrect. She should have said, nobody ever says anything about, um, ab sorry, nobody ever says anything um, positive about them. So she should have said it that way. Uh, so that's an obvious mistake there. Just thinking about it, you could say, again, it sounds natural and people talk like this, but obviously this is incorrect grammar because it's a double negative used together. Nobody, you can say nobody, ne and then comma, never says anything. So, so in a way she could have said, gotten away with the never if she wanted to, but the correct phrase, nobody ever says anything uh, is the correct one. Yeah, that's it. I, you know, in the, in the last battle, the other judge asked this question. So I want to ask it to you. I think it was to the other person that last time. Um, how do you define what's correct? What's in the dictionary? <laughs> it's um, what's correct. Everyone agrees that the language should be like this, these rules. And that's the correct way. Uh, obviously, everyone breaks those rules. And obviously, when people speak naturally in the street, they break those rules. So. But to say it's incorrect, according to the dictionary, according to the grammar rules, it's incorrect. But even though people break those rules, that's okay. my answer. Yeah. And Jeff brought up some other topics. You know, he kind of sidestepped the correct, incorrect labels on this one. And what do you think about some of those things that he pointed out, like the the cultural aspects let's call them you know because yeah. that was kind of his whole answer was focused on that so maybe you can speak to that a little bit too i mean like you you did you said 
people speak like this in real life. And if you walk on the street, you'll meet someone who speaks like this. And, but at the same time, this issue of being correct or not correct comes up too, right? So where do we really draw that line, I guess, is, is the question. Yeah, it's a complicated uh, question. Because like you say, um, different uh, classes use different type of language, especially if you're talking about uh, blue color, um, it's, it's a fine line. Because they talk like this, it, this cultural language indicates, it doesn't sound correct to say this, but maybe the class of the person, it's, it's complicated to explain culturally like you're um, saying. It's a good question, Chris. Very good question. <laughs> yeah, I'll jump in and say, guys, this is not all fun and games. I mean, the battle, it's, it is a battle. There are going to be some very difficult things thrown at you because the reality is we do have to face this. We do have to face these questions of what language are we teaching? And the question is, you know, do you have your viewpoint defined? And how are you going to explain to students say, but this is what I'm hearing. And my friend says this, or I was at a conversation, I had a conversation at work or at school, and they all said that, how are you going to respond? Because what you're teaching the classroom could be different. It's the prescriptive versus the descriptive. So I think as teachers, we have to be ready to respond and rethink, perhaps, are we using the right language? Um, you know, should it really be correct, incorrect? Or should it more be like, you know, standard versus variations, and then what's acceptable in certain contexts. Some words that came up in Daniel's explanation, natural. Perhaps I prefer that natural to something so rigid as correct, incorrect. Um, what sounds natural in a certain context? What sounds natural in a certain circle? Um, there are different patterns that are natural, and but we try to navigate this carefully and give the best advice to our students so that they are natural and effective um, the majority of the time, right? Very well said. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's jump into the next clip. The next clip is of a very well-known YouTube English teacher, but I don't want you to analyze it thinking of them as a teacher, just analyze it thinking of them as a non-native speaker who has learned English to a very high level and analyze it this way. Why in a car but on a bus? In is used with means of transportation where you can't stand up. Oh my God, English, you're so complicated. So you can't stand up in a car. So you say in a car. You can't stand up in a helicopter, but you can't stand up on an airplane. So on an airplane, in a helicopter, on a bus, in a car. So first of all, I've never heard of this rule before. Um, in you can't stand up so i'm just uh basically um uh, trying to think about this what she's saying but necessarily it's not uh true because um because you can stand up in in a in a, in a train for example so this rule that she's saying is not really uh true for example you can stand up in a train she said you use in a car because you can't stand up in the car. So that's what I see straight away. I like these rules. I do. And in general, they work a lot and they make sense. But um, there's a lot of exceptions. So she could be caught out there and a lot of people could call her out. Like I just said, you can stand up in a train. I'm in a train. You can say that. But she just said the rule is you can't stand up. 
uh, in a train. So there, so that's a, a a rule with a lot of exceptions. She's saying so probably not the best rule to teach. That's my answer. Yeah, it's always tricky with prepositions. Prepositions are always about exceptions. Um, for everyone watching, just please know, like, no matter what language you learn, like, prepositions are probably like the hardest thing, and articles are probably like the second hardest thing. Like, I don't care what the the language is. Um, <laughs> grammatically, I thought what she was saying was fine. Um, so, yeah, honestly, I couldn't notice anything that was glaring. So, I'm gonna kind of hone in on the pronunciation again. Excuse me. So uh, a couple of quick things. Um, again, we're seeing that a plus n combination come up as a bit of a tricky sound. We saw that with like can, um, like can versus like can. Um, there was one other word in there too as well that had an an sound to kind of watch out for. Um, we saw this with some schwa sounds as well. So just making sure that times um, your, you know, ah versus uh are two different sounds. So just kind of watching out for that. That schwa sound again, that's a very common Slavic speaking thing among other language groups too. Um, and then also um, just knowing that she she does British English stuff too, but I know she also kind of highlights a lot of American English stuff. So I'm going to go in on that for like helicopter, like call sound versus like cast. Just trying to make sure your your eye sounds a little bit more open than the, than the British one, which will tend to be a little bit more closed. Um, her rhythm was also a little bit staccato. Um, there, there's moments where it steps out, but again, I think part of this is because she, she's using, again, a lot of very short thought groups. Um, she's giving a lesson I get from a teaching perspective that happens, but the result is a rhythm that does sound just a little bit choppy. So I would try to try to link things a little bit more with breath, maybe cut down again on some of the stressed words, and I think that'll result in speech that sounds a little bit more flowing. Very cool. Two completely different analyses, and uh, that was really cool. All right, so now we've got the last clip. And Jennifer, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this one. It's just a little one, guys. This was a short one, um, native speaker, and it's kind of like a TV show. So um, we'll see if you catch anything questionable or not. <laughs> Here's the mischievous pickle I put them in. The best case scenario is clear. They should both stay silent. From a presentation perspective, this. I mean, this feels like a lesson. This feels like you're teaching. This doesn't feel conversational. And the reason it doesn't feel conversational is in relation to just some of the intonation patterns of things that are being given. Like the, 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 the is clear. They should both be silent. Like that's not a natural conversation pattern. That's a pause used for public speaking. And it's a good effect to make things sound a little bit more dramatic. Um, but I like, there's a great range of pitches being used. So like even with that thought group, like the, 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 the is clear. And then we get the drop. They should both be silent. So that's something that you see among native speakers is that when you're switching from one thought group to the next, usually your pitch register is also going to change. So whether you're going from a high point to a low point or a low point to a high point, and that's something that he's doing, I think, to pretty good effect. Another thing he's doing too, he's also incorporating some pauses, which is something that I know pauses have a horrible reputation, but actually native speakers pause a lot. And there's a good chance that among English learners, you actually may be talking faster than native speakers in some situations. So try to incorporate some pauses in your speech. Uh, I like the stress words. There were some tricky linking situations that I think a lot of English learners encounter. Like, um, I think it was like path followed by like an S, S sound. I can't even say it right there. So like if you have, for instance, uh, like a path so, that tends to be a tricky thing. So like path so, so you could listen to what 
I forget the exact words he used, but you could listen to what he did to get an idea of how those sounds could link. But honestly, I don't have a whole lot to critique unless the goal is sounding more conversational, because if the goal is sound conversational and not like you're giving a speech or a lesson, then we probably want to play around with some of those concepts that we mentioned. Wow. Great. Daniel? So he says the phrase, a mischievous pickle, which is kind of makes you think, okay, it's like mischievous pickle. I'm in a bit of a pickle is a problem. So it makes you think it's, um, it's an expression that I haven't heard a lot, obviously. And um, it makes you think great descriptive um, word to, to describe something a mischievous pickle. Uh, it makes you uh, think about what he's actually talking about, but um, from that, you could uh, interpret it in in different ways. Um, basically, the way I'd interpret it, what it, what he's trying to say is um, is it the the problem that was he's talking about is it's um, oh god mischievous so. So um, strife in problem, very problematic. So it was an in interesting phrase. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but <laughs> <laughs> there, there it goes. Yeah. You're in a pickle. <laughs> I'm in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> the question is, is, are you in a mischievous pickle or a mischievous pickle? <laughs> mischievous. Uh. Ah, there you go. I'd say mischievous. Really? And now we throw it back yeah. to Daniel. If you have a bookmarked um, dictionary there, you could check <laughs> and see. I'll double check it. I'll double check it. <laughs> and you will find that um, what we all tend to kind of say is not actually what's in the dictionary. Uh -huh. Okay. Can you, can you guess what most dictionaries are listing? I'm asking either mm -hmm. of you. You actually picked up, and I like the fact that you're thinking, first of all, I like that, you know, that you're talking about pickle. We hone in on the fact that he's using an idiom. Not everyone's familiar with that. So we have to grasp the context and figure out if, you're, if you don't know pickle, is there enough context to figure it out? Yeah, there is. Um, but mischievous or mischievous? Most of the dictionaries say mischievous. But a lot mm -hmm. of Americans say mischievous. We don't perceive it, again, as a mistake. Is it incorrect? Perhaps according to the dictionary, but the dictionary. again, mm. what's natural, what what's acceptable. So we have to again maybe erase us rather than drawing a bold, firm line saying don't do that. You have to admit it's okay. You'll probably be understood. In fact, a lot of people do it. So, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well done, both challengers. And now our judges will give their comments and award points. Okay, before the judges award points and make a final decision about who to crown the champion of the battle, I need to remind everyone watching that the judges chose the questions, the topics, and the videos. They have had more time to think about the questions than the challengers, and they don't have to defend their answers or face a competitor. Our judges are simply providing their professional feedback, and even though they are judges, they may not always be right. So always make your own decisions about what is correct or incorrect, but more importantly, always be yourself no matter what language you speak. Our challengers are the real heroes of this battle and we should start by applauding them for their valiant performance. <laughs>
All right. Well, Jennifer, how do you think round one went? Again, um, I want to congratulate both um, competitors, both teachers. They stepped up to the plate. We threw some curveballs and they remained standing. <laughs> they did well overall. Um, I really do appreciate um, how Jeff was careful and cautious when there was a video with non-standard patterns there, non-standard English. And I appreciate the hesitancy and restraint he showed. And because this was difficult to say right or wrong, um, it's just simply not standard English, but not necessarily wrong or bad English. And I appreciate that he was one, even hesitant to speak about it, and two, avoided those problematic labels. Um, so I appreciated that. So I would caution Daniel to adopt more of that hesitancy, that hesitation, and not be so rigid with right and wrong. Um, so with that point alone, which is a very important point, I'm gonna to lean towards giving another point to Jeff there. Um, although I really do appreciate that, you know, Daniel spoke on instinct, admitting when he was comfortable to comment and when he had some doubts, that's important for any teacher to admit. There were times when both had to say, I don't see anything wrong, good answer. It actually yeah. is. If you don't see something wrong, why are you searching then for something wrong? So I appreciate the, the restraint and hesitation that Jeff was very open about how he felt. Um, I would caution these competitors and Jeff to use some of that restraint also when you're critiquing the non-native English speaking teachers, because we want to critique in such a way that we don't undermine what these teachers are able to able to bring to the table. So nitpicking with pronunciation, got to be careful there too, because is it really wrong? Is it really a mistake? If it's falling within the range of what's comprehensible, I also don't see that as wrong. The goal is communication. So be a little cautious there. Yeah, I really liked how the discussion around round one and really this whole battle mm. was about prescriptive and descriptive. Mm. And I think it'll be really valuable for us to kind of share uh, some more information to kind of discuss that more because I feel like a lot of people, students and teachers aren't even aware of that. And, and that's kind of the feeling that I got uh, from a lot of Daniel's responses, not that he mm. was like a hardcore committed prescriptivist, but that mm -hmm. had, you know, been brought up in the teaching style of prescriptivism. And I feel like I've fallen into that, especially in the early years of teach. Like that's where you go. You're like, oh, there's the rules. I know the rules <laughs> I can teach. And uh, so, so yeah, maybe for everyone who's listening, watching, you can just kind of put into, you know, a few words, what is prescriptive grammar and what is descriptive grammar? Sure. See if you agree with me. It's just prescriptive prescriptions, like what a doctor says, you know, here's your prescription, here's the medicine, take it. So it's what the books say. It's what the rules say. It's very rule-based. The dictionaries and the textbooks usually present the prescriptive grammar. You go to the dictionary, it's generally that prescriptive grammar. Um, descriptive is describing how grammar is actually used. So again, descriptivists would say, hey, it's not wrong. This is what is being done. These are the patterns that are used out there in writing and in speech. Um, so you got to be careful uh, with those terms, right and wrong. Now, in the context of you know test prep, for example, there is going to be a right or wrong, and we as teachers have to present 
the more standard patterns because those are the patterns that are going to best serve our learners, especially in academic and professional contexts. Um, and on a test, it's going to be right or wrong. They're not going to accept those double negatives. The subject yeah. verb agreement has to be there according to the books. Um, but in general, even the dictionaries are starting to yeah. loosen it up. So th there is this general flexibility that is growing. And we as teachers need to be mindful of that, too. So and, I, and you know, in this context of a battle, a competition, yeah. I feel like people are pushed more. Yes. You say correct, incorrect. And you know, that's kind of the inspiration I feel like here, because there are so many videos out there saying, don't say this, say this. And like that might get views, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, it's a kind of a prescriptivist approach to what's happening. And I feel like that gets lost a lot when students are watching videos because they might see a teacher like Jeff, who is very descriptivist, or or we, you know, we would say that he's leaning on that side and they and they might say, well, why doesn't he correct the mistakes? Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not really understand that core fundament, fundamental difference in the approach as a teacher. Whereas a teacher who just says mistake, 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 <laughs> are gonna fall in love with that and they're gonna say, I learned so many rules and mistakes, right? Right. But that same kind of flexibility is also what I would recommend we all as teachers adopt also in the sphere of pronunciation. And so that's why as a teacher, again, you're going to have some who promise, you know, total accent reduction, not reduction, elimination. I never promise that to my students. I promise reduction, not elimination, because my goal is to make them comprehensible, you know, comprehensible speech. So you got to be careful too in um, critiquing what is exactly a pronunciation mistake? If it's affecting communication, if it's becoming difficult to understand, then yes, we need to point it out. Their intonation was off. If the intonation is off, there really could be a communication problem. But um, you know, with vowels, there's a range, I believe, um, of what's acceptable and what's comprehensible. So just a little more caution in that sphere is what I would have liked to hear would like to have heard. <laughs> See, and there you go. So whatever comes out, comes out. And, um, you know, we fall into that troop too, trap too. Did I just say that correctly or not? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess prescriptive grammar is kind of like laws, right? Like mm -hmm. rules, like driving, you're driving, there's a speed limit. <laughs> and it's not that you can't break it because mm -hmm. you can go faster but it tells you what you shouldn't do. Uh, it tells it like you have to be taught that thing. You have to learn it. And you know that you know it. You consciously know it and you can break it. But on the descriptive side, it's more like you're walking outside in the heat and you sweat. And so like, can you tell your body to cool off? <laughs> your body will do it. And this is just a rule describing how things work, right? Uh, it's not a thing that like you can't break that rule. It automatically happens and you do it without thinking about it. And you don't know the exact rule. Like your parents didn't say your body starts to uh, cool itself down or, or they didn't give you the scientific explanation, right? Uh, so like there's rules in both ways of approaching it, but um, instead of saying, this is what it should be. And I think Jeff made a really good point here, connecting that to power structures, social uh, structures, 
Uh, yes. Right. Language is connected to culture. It's connected to social values. Print. I mean, yes, the language is not isolated. There's a lot of things connected into it. And I think that Jeff was more aware of that in this battle. Um, however, I do um, you know, appreciate that Daniel was open about some of the judgments made, like context, that when people do hear non-standard variations, there are, there are some conclusions that people jump to. Oh, they, this person belongs to this social class or that group or what. So judgments are made. We can be open and honest about that fact. Um, but again, we ourselves need to show some restraint, and especially when we're using words like right and wrong or don't say that, don't say this, it, but having awareness that you can bend rules this way and that way in certain contexts. And part of our job, especially with the more advanced learners, is to teach those nuances that for this audience, for this context, how do you want to communicate? And we teach that flexibility, which is a difficult thing, takes time. <laughs> context is really key. And it's really hard to teach context. Mm, mm. Especially when you're like, especially in an online classroom, because yeah. you are limited to certain things. Like you can role play as much as you want, but there's nothing that prepares you for like this morning. I, I took my mom to the airport. We stopped at Dunkin' Donuts, went through the drive through and I could barely understand what the guy was. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how would a foreigner? Oh, yeah, I've done that. Yeah. Speaking through the machine there, like it would be impossible um, I've done that with phone conversations. And I, yeah, this, this is the thing. So comprehensibility, that's the key. And so a lot of the like teachers that we saw, I think they had comprehensible speech. It was clear to my ears. Um, so, and they were teaching grammar, which means they were, what, were they, what they were bringing to the table was good. Um, their pronunciation was clear and accurate enough to successfully teach those grammar points. Um, so I wouldn't nitpick with pronunciation there. But when I was on the phone a couple of times you know, with customer service, it often is somebody overseas. And I think my ears like yours, you know, they've been trained and I'm pretty good at understanding a range of accents. So um, for me to actually struggle to understand somebody on custom with in customer service, um, not even due to uh, connection, but pronunciation, um, there's an issue. <laughs> and so I wish I could help those that particular kind of person on, on customer service calls, like slow down, first of all, use the thought groups, <laughs> yeah. watch and those vowel sounds. Pointing out comprehensibility and like in, intelligibility, yes. being able to understand the, the, what the person's saying. I like, I really believe that that's a core element of communication and language learning because if like, that's the whole point. It's not about being right and wrong. It's about understanding each other and communication. So from that uh, perspective, I've now taken a, another perspective that me as a native speaker, whatever that means, that's a separate discussion, right? Uh, whatever that means, like if I go to Pakistan, if I go to Saudi Arabia, if I go to Malaysia, people speak English differently. There's a different variation and everyone there is used to that. And mm -hmm. so for me to be more comprehensible, I need to change how I speak English to be more intelligible to the audience I'm speaking to. And so I don't feel like it's limited to our students who are non-native mm -hmm. speakers. Mm -hmm. I feel like native speakers also have to learn this. That's why we get so adapting at conferences, right? Where we, yeah. the native speakers are the people who they understand the least because we <laughs> like idioms and all of these strange phrases that 
the, just speak to the audience that you have, right? It's also, yeah, it's not even like idiomatic language, of course, that that can be problematic. But, um, you know, the people who love to show off their vocabulary and sound super intelligent. Okay, great. You have more active vocabulary than I do. But if you're constantly throwing out that words and people can't understand, you're not being successful as a communicator. So there's a time and a place to sprinkle those um, low frequency words and, you know, really, and, and not to show off, but again, for the sake of communication, because that specific word really captures the, the idea you wish to express. So again, it, it's having judgment of what's appropriate for your audience. How are you trying to communicate? What are you trying to communicate for whom? <laughs> I feel like there was just a really stark contrast of, you know, yeah. Daniel taking the prescriptive approach and Jeff taking a more descriptive approach. And, um, and so that made it hard for me to say like one way or the yeah. other, yeah. I have to give Jeff three points and Daniel two points. That's how I was going to fall three and two, but guys, thank you for stepping up to the plate, handling those curveballs. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, they I, they both had a great performance. Okay, that's round one. Stay tuned for round two. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel and don't miss the next round or our future battles. Click subscribe now. Battle English at WeSpeakEnglish.com. Do you agree with the judge's decision? Write a comment under this video and tell us your opinion. Learn more about Battle English at WeSpeakEnglish.com.